this series called Waking the Dead. And uh, yes, my blatant attempt to uh, piggyback on the whole Halloween thing that's going on right now. And uh, we're, we've talked uh, over the last couple of weeks um, about Waking the Dead and some, some real issues. Um, two weeks ago, we talked about the problem of evil. Um, that one of the main objections to the existence of God within philosophy is the fact that there's evil. And, and the thing that we ultimately kind of landed on, um, just given some of the events that occurred in Las Vegas and whatnot, uh, was, was this idea. Give me the next slide. Politics can't fix human hearts. Politics and legislation cannot fix it. In fact, it only exacerbates the problem, doesn't it? Yeah, we all know that. And if you don't believe me, go on Facebook. <laughs> See if you'll change your mind about things, right? And then last week, we started um, go, working our way through Ezekiel chapter 37 in this really odd scene called the Valley of Dry Bones. And uh, we're going to continue to talk about this, but, but last week, as we looked at the first three verses, there's this scene that's taking place that is absolutely desolate, absolutely hopeless. And, and the point that we tried to make, the big idea, the thing that I was hoping that you'd walk away from is, is this. Your hopelessness is almost always God's opportunity. In fact, it is God's opportunity. Your hopelessness is God's opportunity. And uh, um, we're going we're gonna to continue to spend some time in the Valley of Dry Bones. So if you have a Bible with you, you might want to turn to um, Ezekiel chapter 37. Or you can punch it in your phone or iPad or whatever device you like to use. Uh, it's fine. Um, Ezekiel 37. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV version if that helps you, if you... Um, want to dial in the version. That way you can uh, see what I'm reading. And to, um, the, the thing that we're going to continue on is, is that there's this question um, that God asks the prophet Ezekiel. He shows him this, this, this desolate scene of all of these bones that are very dry, and he asks this amazing question, can these bones live? Can these bones live? And, and what we discovered last week was that if you are a Jew and you saw that scene, the answer is no, they, they can't. This is the worst of the worst of the worst. And yet here's the sovereign Lord who's saying, can these bones live? And Ezekiel gives probably the wisest response that you can when God asks you an absurd question is, well, only you know, right? You tell me, God. Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. But can these bones live? And, and what happens in the, the, the remaining part of this, this passage, of this segment, is the fact that God begins to answer this question. And, you'll, and we're going to see this. And, and I want to make a, a brief um, uh, kind of comment about how this passage is put together. The first three verses are the introduction. But the rest of the passage is structured by a repeating phrase. Here it is. In verse 4, then he, meaning God, said to me. Verse 9, then he, meaning God, said to me. Verse 11, then he, meaning God, said to me. And so there are three things that God says. Now, one of the things that you may remember from last week is that when the Bible repeats something, usually it's important. Okay? And so here we see this phrase that's repeated, and these things happen in parallel. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first cycle, just the first one. Uh, and then we're going to take the other two uh, later on as, as we move along. So let's open the text. Let's go into the text. Let's read Ezekiel chapter 37. We're going to go from verse 1 until about verse 8. Uh, I think it's verse 8. So here we go. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord 
and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, the son of man, can these bones live? And I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, there's the first one, getting, getting ready to, to, to go here. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath. In them. This is the word of the Lord, and we believe it. Now, it's a very interesting scene, very Halloween-y, isn't it? Kind of. It's kind of a strange sort of thing. So in verse um, 1 through 3, you know, we have this I- idea uh, of, of a prophet who has the hand of the Lord upon him. And remember last week, the idea of prophet um, means this is a person who speaks for God. God chooses them to speak for him. Now, keep that in mind. That's a very important piece because a lot of people out there might call themselves prophets that God never chose. And we actually see that in the Old Testament. But in this case, Ezekiel has the hand of the Lord upon him and he's taken and given this vision of a valley of dry bones. Now, what a prophet will do, if you can recall back, he is, he is tasked with um, calling people back to their relationship to God. And sometimes what we do is we, we think in terms of um, predicting future events. But that's not really what an Old Testament prophet is. An Old Testament prophet speaks for God, but it's almost always calling people back to the relationship that they have, have with the Almighty. Um, evangelists call people first. Prophets call people back. Does that make sense? So if we're talking about New Testament language, evangelists are the one who go and they tell people about Jesus for the first time, but it's a prophet, once they have a relationship, that says, come back, come back to that relationship. Don't forget. So when other people operate in a prophetic role, number one, you need to pay attention, and number two, you gotta be careful how you treat them because the hand of the Lord is upon them, okay? Keep that in mind. Um, a prophet may talk about future events, that's true. May talk about future events. But it's always what God will do in the future. Not that these events are going to, going to occur, but this is something that God's going to do in the future. And by the way, it often has to do with the relationship that he has with people. Don't forget that, that, that God is really about this relationship that he has with humankind, with this human community. And when we, when we see a prophet talking about it, it's what God's going to do in the future, and it usually has something to do with the relationship that he has with with humankind. All right, so then we go into uh, verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now remember, this begins this kind of first uh, segment, um, um, uh, 
then he said to me. That's kind of the, the indicator of, of all of this. Now, this, this word here, prophecy, in um, Hebrew is nabah, and nabah actually has some uh, kind of an interesting history. In earlier um, Jewish thought, nabah prophecy has to deal with religious ecstasy. So think about a group of, of preachers having a rave, <laughs> right? That's kind of what it is. There's an image, right? And that's kind of what it was. When you see that word used in, especially around the time of the conquest and time of the judges, and even um, at the very beginning of, of Saul's ministry, we hear this idea about prophesying and almost, almost always includes some kind of ecstatic behavior, just FYI. Later on, as the word was used, and this became a role within the government of, of ancient Israel, it had more to do with religious instruction with occasional predictions of the future, okay? So keep that in mind, is that um, this word prophecy has this long history within, within ancient Israel. And then in verse 5 and 6, we start to get into the meat of the, of the, the actual prophecy. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones, I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to, make, uh, to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now, there's a couple of things here that we need to point out. First is that there's this word breath that occurs. Uh, it actually occurs twice, but here it is. I will make breath enter you. This is a fascinating word, but I'm not going to cover it. You've got to come back in two weeks, and then I'm going to cover it. That's called a hook. But you, you don't want to miss that because the word breath in Hebrew is an absolutely fascinating word. Uh, and we find that that word is always coupled here with, um, then the Lord said to me, something about breath, okay, in each one of these cycles that we go through. So keep that in mind. But that's the hook. You need to come back in a couple weeks, and we're going to talk about it. It'll be fun. Um, then notice the very last line. Then you will know that I am the Lord. How is that not about relationship? Then you will know that I am the Lord. He's speaking to these dead, these dead bones, and he asks, can they live again? And he's saying, I'm going to put breath in you, and then you will know. That is a relational term. You will have an understanding of who God is. See, prophecy is always about relationship at some level. Keep that in mind. All right, let's go on to verse 7. <clears throat> so I prophesied as I was commanded. <laughs> okay, was that weird? <laughs> Can you imagine, you're, you know, you're talking to a bunch of, uh, now look, I've preached some of my best sermons to the car dash and to my shower stall. Let me tell you, I mean, if you see me going down the road and I'm, I'm, my mouth is moving, I'm probably preaching something, and I have saved my steering column I don't know how many times. Come on, we're going to have an altar call right here in a car, right? No, I'm just kidding. But it, there's a part of me that says, okay, so you know, go ahead and prophesy these bones. So Ezekiel's probably standing there going, okay, <laughs> you know, I, can't, I can't imagine this. But then look what, what happens. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. Yeah, that was weird, right? Can you imagine? I, freak would have freaked me right out. I probably would have been screaming like, ah, what is that kind of a thing. These are real people who are having real experiences. Don't miss that. How you would uh, feel is probably how they would feel. Think about that for a little bit. And I just think that's an amazing thing. That had to have been bizarre. Cool, but kind of bizarre. 
All right. Uh, and I looked, and tendons of flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. The bottom line here is God did what he said he was going to do as he was prophesying. Now, there's a couple features here that we need to point out, things that we need to understand about this passage, things that are, are, are important to the overall understanding of it. And here's the first one. Notice that God commanded, but he moved after Ezekiel prophesied. Okay? The way this happened is important. So God said, you prophesy, Ezekiel prophesied, and then the action happened. Are you with me? I mean, that makes perfect sense uh, when, we, when we read through the passage. For whatever reason, God chooses to work through human action. God chooses to do that. Does he need to? Uh-uh. Could he have just shown the valley of dry bones and went shazam, and all of a sudden these things happen? Of course he could have, but he didn't. He said, prophesy over them first. And as Ezekiel was prophesying, then God moved. It's very strange. Uh, let, me, let me point this out to you. Um, we, we actually see this, this combination of God-human action in several places, but I really like what, what the um, New Testament writer Paul says to a, a group of Christians in Rome. Here it is. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And he's talking about non-believers believing in Jesus. How can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, remember how Paul came to faith. He's on the road to Damascus. Jesus himself hits him with blindness and talks to him directly. I mean, the irony of this is amazing to me. And here Paul is saying, look, how can people actually know Jesus when somebody doesn't preach to them? And the point being made here is the fact that God partners with human beings in order to accomplish his purposes. You with me? It's, an, it's an, really an amazing feature of Christianity. And it's imperative that we listen to what God is saying because he may be calling us to do something like that in order for him to work. Okay? Now, here's the second thing to pay attention to. Um, not only does God speak and, uh, or command, then uh, Ezekiel does what he's supposed to, and then he moves, but there's an order to God's work. There's an actual order to this. Um, if you notice in the passage, it's bones and tendons and flesh and breath. Okay, So there's this movement that happens. Um, these bones, tendons, and flesh happen, and then breath. But notice at the end of that passage, all of these things came together, but there was no breath in them. So there's an order to it. There's a certain segment, step-by-step uh, -step process that, that God goes through here. Um, I heard this quote once. I don't know who to attribute it to. Maybe you know. God is a God of order, and he does things in his order. His order, right? What I think we can, can garner from this is that um, there has to be certain elements in place in order to accomplish the goal. And believe it or not, God has goals. God has some type of goal for each one of us and for us collectively as a church. So um, maybe a great example of this is just how we do discipleship, 
How do we think about being followers of Jesus ourselves? And so I want to consider another letter that this apostle named Paul wrote. Uh, he wrote it to a, a group of Christians who gathered in what's now, I guess, modern-day Turkey. Um, we're going to find it in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, let me read this to you, and then we'll, we'll kind of pick it apart a little bit. Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Now, let's stop right there because there's a certain order that's being presented here, and I want to I show this to you, and then we're going to do it graphically as well, because I think this is, this is really helpful. First of all, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all wisdom and understanding. The knowledge of his will. This is kind of the first step. Look, you can't follow Jesus if you don't know him or you're not getting to know him. You, you just can't do it really well. In fact, I know the moments that I don't follow Jesus are the moments that I'm tripping up. I mean, it's just, I just know it um, because I, I've lost that connection to him. Maybe you've experienced it too. But this knowledge of his will are really the bones. This is the basic, base, uh, basis for all of, of discipleship. And, and by the way, and I mentioned this before, I'm going to mention this again. If you want to know what God's will is, here it is. You, you can write this down. God's will is his kingdom. The will of God is always the kingdom of God, every single time. Uh, I had some friends of mine who uh, were experiencing something, and, um, and I remember them saying to me, um, we just want to know what God's will is. And it was tough. It was a tough decision, and I understand they went through it, and I said, you know what? Here's the deal. The fact of the matter is, is that God's will is pretty easy in this. It's his, it's his kingdom. So the question you need to ask is, how can I bring about the kingdom of God in these sets of circumstances? How can I be salt? How can I be light? That's the real question. The will of God is pretty easy. It's the kingdom of God. He wants to see the kingdom of God. People characterized by love. How do we do that in this set of circumstances? And that becomes kind of uh, challenging if we're honest about it, because sometimes it's really difficult to see the kingdom of God, which is why <laughs> Paul says, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit brings, sometimes we can't see where the kingdom of God is. Sometimes the circumstances are rough. It's insurmountable. It's overwhelming. Choose your descriptor. And that's why you need to have wisdom and understanding that, in fact, uh, another part of the scripture um, thought just occurred to me that um, James writes, if you're lacking wisdom, ask for it, <laughs> right? So that you understand the knowledge, um, the knowledge of the will of God. So it takes those things. But, but to what end? Go on, next verse. First part of, of chap, uh, verse 10. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Live a life. In Greek, it means to walk or to tread. Now, the thing that you have to remember here is that this is an action word. So you have knowledge, but what are you going to do with that knowledge? You actually have to do something with it. You have to act it, act it out. Um, 
this is kind of the idea of putting the flesh on things. We often talk about this idea of flesh, fleshing things out or putting legs on it. Uh, you know, there's the, uh, lots of different examples for that. But so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. So yes, you have the knowledge of the will of God, but what are you going to do with it to actually live it out, to actually act upon it? And what we often talk about around here is we want to read the word, we want to absorb it, but we actually want to live it out. Because I know a lot of people who absorb everything in here, but doesn't change the way they behave. I'm not sure that's what Jesus had in mind. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's not what Jesus had in mind. I have a friend of mine who calls it, we get a lot of sermon-soaked saints, which is just fun to say. But the point is, is that sometimes when you're so saturated with, with the sermon, you've got room for nothing else. What you need to do is go ahead and absorb the things that you're hearing on Sundays and in your small groups and then squeeze it all out, that's an action, so that you got room for more on next Sunday. You with me? So there's this action to it. That's the flesh on this thing. And then finally, bearing fruit in every good work. Didn't we just do a series on bearing fruit? Yeah, we did. Uh, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Now, this is, this is important that we, we get a feel for this. Because bearing fruit is really what, what God is after. When we bear fruit, it is life to us and life-giving to others. Think about those moments when you have done what God has asked you to do, how you felt about it. There's something inside of you that goes, oh, yes, this is awesome. And at the same time, it's life-giving for the other person. Let me give you an example of this. I was sitting in a coffee shop, uh, as is my custom, and uh, there was a, a barista there, and um, she uh, was sporting some new uh, ink, some uh, tattoo. And I said to her, I said, hey, did you, did you get some new ink? And she said, uh, yeah. And she got this really funny look on her face. And, and I said, I've, I've not seen that symbol before. Can you can you tell me what it is? And she goes, well, I could tell she was uncomfortable. And I'm like, okay, did I just step in something and I didn't realize it? I mean, I just, uh, you know, I thought I was being polite and asking about this thing. And she goes, well, it's a symbol of something. And, um, you know, it's very personal. And I said, hey, you don't, you don't have to tell me if you don't want to. I'm just, you know, kind of curious. And she goes, well, I'll tell you, but I don't know what you'll think. And I'm like, you know what I do for a living? <laughs> People tell me weird stuff all the time. And, you know, I, hey, but you tell me. And she goes, well, and, and she said that it was the symbol for um, anorexia bulimia. She was in recovery. And she said the words, and her eyes never left my face because she wanted to know how I was going to react to that. And I looked at her and I said, so you, you, you're a survivor and, and you re, you're in recovery for it. She says, yeah. And I said, then you're my hero. She started to cry. I didn't go to seminary to manage budgets. I went to seminary to connect with people, to have life and to give life to someone else. Those are the moments that we remember. That's the whole point to this exercise. We get together 
to learn the knowledge of God, to live it out so that we can bear fruit, so that we can have life ourselves and to pass it out to someone else. That's why we do this. Does that make sense? That's the point of the endeavor. If we're not doing that, let's just close the doors and go do something else. Because that's the thing that we're after. These are the things that we're, these are the stories that we want to hear. Bearing fruit is, is, look, live things reproduce. Live things reproduce, and we want to reproduce that growing fruit. But look what it says at the very end. Bearing fruit, never good work. Growing in the knowledge of God. Wait, didn't we just start with that? Didn't we start with the knowledge of the will of God? Didn't, didn't and this is where it's ending too. So maybe we could show it graphically. Maybe it looks like this. You start with knowledge, you live it out, you bear fruit so that you can have more knowledge of God. How about that? There's a cycle to this thing. It's cyclical. The point is, is that we give we get life ourselves when we live this thing out. We bear fruit, but we give life and we learn more about God and the kinds of things that he wants us to do in life, which just starts that cycle. And if we're fortunate, if we're blessed, we actually help someone else begin the knowledge of the will, will of God. You see that? It reproduces not only in ourselves, but in the lives of someone else. That's powerful stuff. That will make the world go round, I think. So we're growing in the knowledge of God. The problem is that we often want the fruit without the prior effort, myself included, okay? Sometimes we just want to do that. We want breath without bones and flesh. We want all of those things. It's the same thing is true of organizations, especially churches, right? So if you think about it, here's the bones, the bones of, of uh, next slide, uh, the bones of, of Thrive Church starts with our purpose and our promise. You know, we have a purpose that we're here to, to join God in rescuing the world one disciple at a time. That's it. That's why we get together. We flesh that out in a very specific way. We worship, we grow, and serve, right? We do less to accomplish more. So we focus our efforts on three things and three things only. We do this every Sunday. We worship together. Sometimes we get together on Wednesday nights. We grow together in our small groups, and I presume that you're growing in your own discipleship, but we get together to do that in small groups, and we also serve together because the point of the, of, of the whole exercise is not to just do it for ourselves. Jesus is pretty clear about alleviating suffering. Something about widows, orphans, and strangers, right? About healing the blind and the lame, you know? So we need to serve others. Uh, as we do that. And, and the life that happens out of this is growth and impact. The impact that we make when people begin to understand that the stuff they've been through is a beautiful thing and that God is in the process of, of, of redeeming them as well. And we get to do that. We, we talk about impact, and that's baptisms, and that's the stories about life change and about bearing fruit. And mm. The bottom line here is the fruit needs the branch and the trunk. You can't just have the fruit appear out of thin air. Well, maybe God can do that, but the point is, for the rest of us, there's an order to this, the trunk and branch and leaves and fruit, right? It's the same thing, bones and tendons and flesh and breath. There's a whole process to this. 
But I think what happens is that, is that how God works often throws us. How God actually accomplishes the things is what throws us off a little bit. Change looks very different than what we might have imagined. Have you noticed that? I mean, you think about the changes that have been in your life, it, it doesn't necessarily look like kind of what you thought it was going to look like. It might look a little bit different than that. Um, Ezekiel was speaking to Israel in exile. So Israel is carried off into Babylon, and Ezekiel is trying to offer a certain amount of hope to them. Um, and by speaking for God on, on his behalf. And then God takes him to this absolutely forsaken place, which is really interesting. When Israel returns back to Jerusalem after the exile, it looks very different than what they expected. And if you don't believe me, you read Nehemiah and Ezra, and you can, you can read about that. <clears throat> Jesus was a very different Messiah than what people expected. Military commander, somebody to challenge Rome, and he shows up as a carpenter slash rabbi. Pretty different, not what they expected. In fact, one of his metaphors that he, he used was you can't put new wine into old wineskins. And, and the, the idea with that is, is that you can't have old frameworks and expect something new. Because if you have an old wineskin and you try to pour new wine into it, it expands and that wineskin will burst. And so what he's trying to tell us here is, is that is that ultimately the change that you're, um, that you're seeking may look very different than kind of what you imagined. And so here's the, the big idea. This is the thing I want you to remember today. Here it is. God's actions are always good, but often surprising. God's actions are always good, but they're very often surprising. They're not exactly what you'd expect, and that's okay. They're always good. They're just very often surprising. So let's take a second and let's just get real. Let's get real with this. Tell me, don't, but think about your valley of dry bones. What's yours? What's that area that seems hopeless to you? You know what? I started writing mine out. And oh yeah, I've got them too. Because everybody does. Everybody has those areas where it's like, Oh my gosh. It might be a relationship, it might be a family member, it might be a work situation, it might be financial, it might be, who knows? That area that just seems hopeless. And I, I spent probably an hour in my journal just kind of writing them out saying, okay, Lord, if my hopelessness is your opportunity, then I need to get real with my hopelessness. And the question that you need to ask yourself after that, not only what is your hopelessness, but can those bones live? That's where we ended last week. Can those bones live too? Now be honest with your hopelessness. Sometimes the hardest step is just acknowledging that it's even there. But guess what? God can handle it, and that's good news. He understands that hopelessness. And the third question that comes to mind is, might change actually be coming? And might it be something that you're not expecting? Or, or maybe it, it's, it's coming, and the way it's coming about, you could never have predicted. I mean, think about some of the surprises in your life. Guess what? If you knew that was what was going to occur, you can't classify it as a surprise. Right? 
So I'm going to encourage you today, I guess, to prophesy in a way to your dry bones. The God we serve is one who redeems, renews, restores. He does those three things. And so when you prophesy to whatever your dry bones is, happens to be, whatever they are, remember that you're prophesying redemption, restoration, and renewal in some way.